and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 10th of March with me, in Welsh. I was delighted to catch up a few days ago with Brendan May, sustainable business commentator and expert, chairman of Robertsbridge and a regular guest on the podcast over the years. We had a conversation about some of the business trends to watch for in the coming months and the dangers of complacency when tackling challenges such as climate change and biodiversity loss. Also coming up is Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop, talking with me about a couple of the panel sessions at the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London in a few weeks. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. Deforestation has an impact on regional rainfall, according to new research published in the journal Nature. It found that clearing tropical rainforests meant that nearby farmers were less able to depend on consistent rain. Researchers from Leeds University examined satellite and meteorological records from 2003 to 2017, and they found that when considering large regions of up to 40,000 square kilometres, rainfall decreased by 0.25 percentage points for every single percentage point of forest loss. The findings come amidst concerns that the Amazon region will soon reach a tipping point where it will no longer be able to generate its own rainfall and will eventually dry out. Up to 50% of the Amazon rainfall comes from water recycling from the trees. The findings, of course, will come as no surprise to many people living in tropical forested areas. There have been many anecdotal stories of tree cover reductions leading to local rainfall loss. The impact of the New Nature study could be to encourage big agricultural companies and buyers with key supply chains in tropical regions to act to keep forests standing. The Brazilian wine industry is not one that we cover very often, but three of the big companies in the sector have become embroiled in a modern slavery scandal. More than 200 workers were recently rescued from what were described as slave-like conditions. The workers had been lured to Brazil's main wine-growing region with promises of competitive rates of pay, free accommodation and food. They had been recruited from areas of high unemployment and poor prospects. Instead, they were provided with squalid accommodation, wages withheld or paid late, subjected to exhausting work conditions and physical violence, inadequate food and effective imprisonment. The workers had been recruited by a common contractor to whom the wineries had outsourced labour provision. The government ministry responsible for tackling workplace conditions and instances of modern slavery had been abolished by the government of the now voted out President Jair Bolsonaro. Amid the ongoing debate on food packaging and possible alternatives to plastics that maintain freshness and shelf life, PepsiCo has announced a trial of paper-based outer packaging for its Walker-branded multipack crisps in the UK. This is part of the company's strategy for virgin, fossil-fuel-free packaging by 2030 in Europe. The paper-based outer packaging is completely recyclable in domestic recycling, which is, PepsiCo says, a first for savoury snacks flexible packaging in the UK. The latest tightening of EU rules on social environmental regulations looks set to impact the pension sector. Currently, pension funds subject to EU regulation do not require to integrate sustainability factors into investment decisions, and this may change to an explicit duty for funds to accommodate sustainability risks in their investment decisions and the potential long-term impact of their investment strategy and decisions on sustainability factors. The proposed change is part of a wider review of pension fund regulation that will also include requirements for new diversity and inclusion factors in pension scheme management bodies. The package of measures is out for stakeholder feedback until the end of May. The first Innovation Forum Spring Conference season is coming up at the end of March, when we will be in London focusing on responsible sourcing and ethical trade. We have got some fascinating panels and interactive sessions planned over the two days, and earlier this week I spoke with Conference Director Emily Heslop about two particular highlights coming up. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me back. So we're going to be talking about the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum, which is coming up very soon in London on 29th and 30th of March. We're going to talk today a little bit about two of the sessions that we're excited about hosting in particular. 
On the first day, we're going to hear from a survivor of, of trafficking in the UK, aren't we? Someone who's been a victim of modern slavery and going to explain a little bit about what happened and then outline how they managed to extricate themselves from a very difficult situation. We're really interested to hear that. And we're leading on from that session into one looking at modern slavery toolkits and whether a standardised approach to tackling modern slavery is indeed the way forward. So in that session, we've got Ryan Lynch from the British Standards Institute and Joe Webb from The Body Shop. What are each of those panellists going to be bringing to the session, Emily? Yeah, so we're really looking forward to these two sessions that are kind of really working together to talk about modern slavery. For what the two panellists are actually bringing to the table, BSI have recently published their national standard that is free to download for anyone, giving organisations guidance on how to manage modern slavery risks in their operations, supply chains and wider operating environment. So Ryan will be explaining a bit more about the standard itself and how it can be used in practice by certain organisations and different clients that they've worked with in the past. And then Joe, as head of sustainable procurement at Body Shop, a very prominent global brand like the Body Shop, is going to be talking about how they tackle modern slavery within their own supply chain some of the potential drawbacks of actually using a standardised approach across different jurisdictions and why more specific targeted approaches need to be taken in certain regions and geographies. Yes, I'm looking forward to hearing about how a standardised approach can work at scale, but equally what sort of levels of flexibility are required to be really impactful in different situations. It's always a bit of a tricky conundrum. That session is going to be led by my colleague Toby Webb from Innovation Forum. And then on the second day, we're going to be looking at a session where we're considering specifically uh, living wages at scale and the opportunities for business to implement living wages throughout supply chains. Clearly, there are a lot of obstacles to ensuring living wages are in supply chains, but equally, it's really important that we get around them. What do you think about this? What for you are the main reasons why companies really need to engage on living wages and supply chains? When it comes to ensuring a living wage for workers, ultimately, we've all learned that one size definitely does not fit all. So when you're operating across different industries, on different cross-sector initiatives, ultimately, you've got to take into consideration the different wage calculations of the areas you're working in, different political economic instability sometimes in certain sourcing countries. It needs to be taken holistically to make sure that we have these more prominent living wage calculations and make sure we're implementing them effectively. And who have we got involved in the panel? We've got three great speakers involved in the panel. So we've got Julie Cornoyer from FIFE's, the Global Director of Sustainability, Amanda Penn from IDH, the Sustainability Trade Initiative. She's a Senior Programme Manager. And then we've got Aisha Aswani from Co-op, who's a Senior Human Rights and Ethical Trade Manager. And so the three of them are going to be really looking at insights into how brands can effectively collaborate with local and national sourcing country governments, how to consider and manage potential unintended consequences implementing these living wages at scale and then the opportunities for looking at effective multi-stakeholder partnerships to scale up these programs. Living wages a continuing challenge for businesses for sure. How can our listeners get involved in the event? Yeah, so there's still time to get involved. We've got a handful of tickets remaining, so they're going to have to go quite quickly to make sure they secure their ticket. We're really expecting for the event to sell out in the next few weeks. Listeners can purchase the ticket on the conference website. If they can book before Friday the 10th of March, they can save £100. We can extend that up until Tuesday the 14th of March for podcast listeners' exclusive discount. If anyone is interested in exploring group booking discounts, so for groups of three or more, we can offer a discount for 
those groups so they can email me directly at emily.heslop at innovationforum.co.uk. Thanks, Emily. So listeners, remember the exclusive podcast user discount, just insert podcast into the box. You can see where there's a box for your code at the checkout when buying your tickets. And that's discount extended to Tuesday, the 14th of March. Emily, I'm really looking forward to this event. It's great that we're going to have so many people there. It's our biggest ever human rights related event. And it's really good to see the demand. Looking forward to it, Emily. See you later in the month. Yeah, see you there. Coming up now are some highlights of a conversation I had with sustainable business expert and commentator Brendan May, chair of Roberts Bridge, about some key trends and what business needs to do to take advantage of them. So we're going to talk about some of the general sustainable business trends that you're seeing and a kind of broader chat about business issues. Brendan, what for you are the key sustainable business trends that stand out at the moment? I think the first observation is that all of the macro issues that have had the world swirling for the last few years, the COVID pandemic, the war in Ukraine, none of those have diminished attention to or concern about the sustainable business agenda or the sustainability agenda, which to some degree is unsurprising. But I think there was some fear during the pandemic, and then particularly when Russia invaded Ukraine, that all sustainability bets would be off and everything would be dropped in favour of short-term need. And very much the opposite has happened. What we are in the middle of now is probably the third big wave of the deepening of the embedding of sustainability in all commercial activity and in all of the world's major economies in a way that was frankly unthinkable even 10 years ago. It's certainly in terms of corporate approach, it does feel that those denying the need for action, particularly around climate change, an increasingly irrelevant rump. Do you agree with that? And are there dangers of making that assumption, do you think? I absolutely agree with that. Climate denial has evolved to a slightly different slant, which is all too expensive. We can go more slowly. The denial is diminishing quite rapidly. So then you see the emergence of things like the net zero scrutiny group. And, but they're not really debating that this is going to happen. They're debating how we should deal with it. So they very much had to shift their ground. Because frankly, if you now are still in the climate denial camp, you know, you are at the sort of crazier extremes of far-right MAGA conspiracy theories, you know, you're likely to think that vaccines are a conspiracy by Bill Gates and, and all sorts of other things, that the moon landings didn't happen. It's a very, very marginal group. But certainly the resistance to action on climate change is not something that should be simply swept away and not taken seriously, because there is huge resistance from vested interests, from politicians, in particular parts of the political spectrum. And there's a long way to go. And there are some countries where climate action is very, very far from top of mind. Having said that, We've seen, of course, a major change of government in the US in the last couple of years. We've just seen a major change of government in Australia. The European Union is serious about climate change. The British government is serious about climate change. So one can argue about the pace, the semantics of it, and indeed some of the models like net zero, is it the right model? One of my fears is that we always in the sustainability world have a parlance or a lexicon that lasts about three to five years, and then along comes another one. So we have natural capital, then we have net zero. These things can't be the kind of fashionable fads they have to hold. But I think in the case of net zero, the vast majority of the world's GDP is now covered under net zero by the respective governments. And so that's here to stay. But still lots of debates to be had about how we do it and how quickly we do it. Do you think it's important to focus on getting a single approach 
or is it more important that we actually don't worry about that so much just actually get on with it because in general the kind of different approaches all have similar aims it's a bit like debate around carbon offsetting carbon credits huge debate around how you do the accounting and the science and everything else that's great you can argue about that but you need to be getting the finance to the projects that prevent the trees from being chopped down do you think that's the same for the broader climate debate I do. I think our whole field gets terribly strangled in semantics and definitions and terminologies and different rating systems and different frameworks and benchmarks and so on. And sometimes they have been a substitute for action. And of course, it lets companies off the hook because they go, well, look, you guys go and decide. And when you've decided, get back to us and we can then plan with certainty. In fact, we've seen that a little bit with the delays in the SEC disclosure requirements in the US, which effectively led to companies pausing their disclosures on ESG issues for a very long time because the whole thing was embroiled in discussions and debates and no company knew what they were supposed to be reporting on. So it had a very counterproductive effect. Having said that, there are, of course, legitimate debates to be had about everything from carbon offsetting to all of the other solutions that are on offer, including how we transition the energy mix. Okay, let's think about deforestation a bit. Over the past few years, we've certainly been seeing quite a lot of, well, great work in deforestation and some very obvious wins in terms of protection of forests in particular areas. But what we're also seeing is transference when you've got moratoria against land use change in particular ecosystems. They're actually leading to destruction elsewhere. Soy development moving in South America from the Amazon to the Cerrado being a prime example. Are there any obvious ways to counter this, Brendan, do you think? My own view is... Firstly, you have to take the landscape level approach, and this is a multi-jurisdictional approach to this. But in the end, deforestation will only be halted if there is no market for products that come for it. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of progress in the European Union with deforestation regulations and, and directives. However, you will never entirely crack this until these issues are factored into trade deals, which they are currently not. And I'm not talking about the watering down of environmental food standards in the context of something like a post-Brexit deal between Britain and Australia or New Zealand, important though that is. I'm talking about multilateral trade. If we're going to have trade deals, for example, between the European Union and Brazil, and there is no mention of deforestation in the texts of those trade deals or the conditions around them, I'm not sure quite how you ultimately phase out products that have come from deforestation. I don't think this is quite yet, and I think it will eventually, actively translated into the terms of global trade, be it through WTO or, or other mechanisms. If there's a market for it, it will continue. It's as simple as that. Ultimately, the only market-based solutions will drive the change, and we need to realise that, I think. There has been significant regulatory tightening in the past decade. As ever, when rules change, even with the best of intentions, there are unintended negative consequences. What examples have you seen of this? You've alluded to one of them already. You know, you, you tighten forest regulations and it tends to either shift supply chains um, elsewhere to places where there is less scrutiny of these issues. Look at something like the EU Renewables Directive on Heat Policy, which set a target. It was a percentage target of how much renewable energy you had in the system, but it didn't really take into account the long-term needs of the sector. So that then led to policies like the Renewable Heat Incentive, which was built to meet the renewable energy directive target rather than tackling climate change. So it incentivized tens of thousands of biomass boilers 
all of which are going to have to be replaced with heat pumps, you know, well before 2050. That was an unintended consequence. You look at the war against plastics, which is desirable, but it's not desirable if it leads to a lot of people throwing away food and, and increases food waste if we don't find alternative ways of doing what consumers require to have their food preserved in a way that they still want to eat it as opposed to chucking it out after two days. There are always quality issues and trade-offs. Look at the push for decarbonizing the global economy and what that means for the mining sector. We've had the environmental movement rightly calling for the decarbonization of the global economy for about 40 years. It's now happening. You can be absolutely clear that once the mining activity starts happening that is required for the batteries to service an electrified global economy, that the NGOs will be complaining about the mining. There is no question about that. It's for them to reconcile those positions, but it will happen. I think there are plenty of examples not just in forestry, but you know, in plastics, in energy policy. We haven't yet regulated palm oil to the degree that anyone's seriously suggesting banning it. But I can tell you, having worked in that sector, the consequences of banning palm oil would be absolutely catastrophic. It would drive production to other uses of palm oil, where there would be no scrutiny at all, to other markets where there is far less scrutiny, and it would shift land use to far less efficient ways of producing for the food industry and other industries. We have to be very, very careful always about unintended consequences of what at the time seems like a perfectly noble environmental objective. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think palm oil is a clear example where people forget that markets evolve in a particular way for very good reasons. They've evolved using palm oil because it is highly efficient. It does its job better than anything else. It takes up less land use to produce the amount of usable oil. I saw a statistic in the amount of soy, the amount of land required if you switch from palm to soy. It's some ridiculous tenfold potentially size increase of land that will have to be under soy. And equally, as you said, in terms of packaging, People forget that plastic packaging has evolved for a very good reason. It's very good at preserving food. And the last thing we want to do is move from a plastic crisis to a food waste crisis, as you rightly pointed out. We've talked about this a little bit about uh, carbon so far. And there has, of course, been a real focus on carbon in the past few years. Do you think moving fast enough to take action on biodiversity loss? No, I mean, it's been the poor cousin of the climate change discourse for many, many years. Uh, despite the efforts of some extremely eminent people on the nature agenda, both in the UK and globally. But that's changing now. Of course, we've had the biodiversity COP. We've got a global framework in place. And I think there is growing recognition that these are twin crises that need equally urgent attention, although there is some tension between them, as there are tensions between environmental conservation and development, and there always have been. And there's no point in pretending otherwise. The destruction of nature, its consequences for the global food system and for so much else on which all life depends are absolutely fundamental and in the oceans as well as on land. You know, when you look at oceans, these issues have always been a bit out of sight, out of mind. You don't see underwater what we see on land. And it's, I think, to some degree harder for a lot of people to connect with what is happening there. But what is happening there is extremely serious and, of course, links back to climate because of the ocean's ability to help us mitigate climate change if we manage them properly. So it's good to see now this increased focus. But when you think of how sluggish progress has been on climate, despite all of the available science and knowledge and political interest that there's been for the last 30 years or so, we can't really afford to have the same pace of change now that we've agreed something in Montreal. We're not going to be able to go at the same pace because we really are running enormous risks, not just to the health of biodiversity, but to human health. 
feels like the carbon and biodiversity issues come together in the regenerative agriculture debate, which is obviously one that's become really much to the fore. What do you see as the potential for regenerative agriculture? And what are the sort of pitfalls that need to be avoided to ensure that that potential is possible? The whole concept of conservation and restoration and landscapes that thrive with both agriculture and biodiversity and nature protection, it's been quite well piloted. You know, this is not particularly new. I remember seeing Rainforest Alliance certified coffee farms in Costa Rica in 2006 that did precisely this. It was very interesting because you would look at the farms that were certified next to farms that were not. And the canopy cover and the shade, you know, it was completely different. And the biodiversity within those areas was completely different. There have been companies who have used their, for example, paper plantations as a buffer to protect areas of rainforest, like in the Kampar Peninsula in Sumatra, to great effect. So there are plenty of case studies out there that this can work. And I think it's important to learn from those. Regenerative agriculture is the new kind of buzzword, but it's not actually a new concept at all. I mean, it's all part of the shift to, yeah, here's another buzzword, nature-based solutions. We've talked about the fact we have all these different nomenclatures in this space. But it is great that these are being used and people can understand nature-based solutions. Yes, it's reconnecting with nature. And I guess also growing communities get it as well because they are, to a greater or lesser extent, working with nature all the time. It just feels it's all part of the discourse forward in ways that make sense for those involved. And nature-based solutions, you know, they get knocked for being a license to pollute or whatever. But I always... So these projects need to happen regardless of what the company can claim against them. These forests, as you said earlier, they've got to have the finance flowing into them. The communities that work and live in those forests have to be incentivized to keep those forests standing and to have thriving landscapes. Yes, let's have a debate about how much avoided deforestation should you be allowed to claim for a carbon credit if you're an oil company. But that is not an argument for not doing these projects at all, because these projects are absolutely vital and not just forests, mangroves, coral reefs, all sorts of projects. Nature-based solutions will only grow, but it must grow because of the value to the world of keeping these pristine landscapes functional and healthy. It mustn't grow simply because there are more and more carbon emissions that need to be offset by hard-to-abate industries who themselves absolutely need to be decarbonizing. And at the same time, as you said earlier, you can't have companies sitting and waiting for the magic solution to emerge. We've got to get on with it. And all solutions approach really is the only one that's going to make a big difference. Obviously, greenwashing has been something that um, come to get very sensitive about. And it's why so many companies haven't been brave enough to push forward hard enough. Do you think that increasing sensitivity around greenwashing, though, has led to greater transparency? Yeah, and it's still happening now. I mean, there was an airline the other day that was censored for an advert that said it protected the planet, well-known German airline. I think it is leading to increased transparency. I hope it is leading to increased caution by marketers on what they feel they can run away with and get away with as a green marketing campaign. I worry a little bit, though, that it whips companies into frozen silence out of fear that anything they say at all on the sustainability agenda will immediately be slammed as greenwashing. I don't think that would be a good outcome. In fact, that would be another unintended consequence of regulation that would be unfortunate if no company feels it can say anything either to its own employees or to its customers or to its investors or indeed anybody else about its sustainability efforts or feels that they can't advertise them because communicating this agenda is a very big part of our way out of the problem because we have to engage the public in the journey. 
Interestingly, on human rights issues and modern slavery issues, it does feel very much that levels of transparency are increasing to the extent that companies are publicly at, at Innovation Forum events and others saying, well, look, we know there will be human rights challenges in our supply chains. We will have issues of modern slavery. Our job is to find them. Our job is not to say we don't have any. Our job is to find them and deal with them. And that's a really significant shift in approach. I've been arguing for 20 years that companies should speak authentically, truthfully, openly. I don't understand why there is such fear of doing that. I know corporate lawyers get involved. We can't say that and we better not say this. But it's actually nonsense. Just be upfront and say, look, we source this product from these challenging areas and these are the social or indeed environmental issues that are in those particular supply chains or parts of the world. And there will be problems and there will be issues. And here is our approach to how we're going to deal with them. And crucially, we're not going to wait for other people to find them and bring them to public attention. We're going to find them ourselves wherever we can. And, and if we don't and somebody else finds one, we'll deal with it in an open and transparent way. There's been quite a lot of this, of course, with grievance systems in the palm oil and pulp and paper industries and, and others. But it should apply to everything. It should apply to the seafood industry, the prawn supply chain, any industry where there is exploitation of people or of children, women, forced labour, passports being taken away. Be upfront about it and go out and lead and find the solutions. Turn back then to what we started the conversation around, looking at the sustainable business trends. Clearly, we're in an uncertain business climate right now. There's you know, a great deal of uncertainty in across a great many different areas. But do you think this uncertainty is what has sharpened corporate focus on sustainability issues? Yes. And it began with COVID. COVID hit and my initial reaction was, oh dear, this is going to put sustainability back 10 years. Everybody's going to ditch all their commitments, spend less. And it was quite the opposite. I think people learned that we can do things much more efficiently. We don't always have to jump on a plane to go to a meeting. We all went virtual and online. And I think people learned quite a lot from that. I think people greatly valued local spaces and green spaces a lot more because we were all trapped in our homes. People did things differently. They communicated differently. It was a little bit more community spirit. So I think I think it had various knock-on effects, but it also, at a macro level, this pandemic made us look at our food system, our farming system, our relationship with nature. Are there going to be more of these? What do we need to do to clean up the way that we interact with nature? You had those extraordinary shots of wildlife returning to canals in Venice and all sorts of things that hadn't been seen for years. You had that. Then, of course, with the Ukraine war, you've got massive scrutiny on, on energy security and where we get our energy from. Now, that's had some major debates for countries like Germany, which were very dependent on Russian fossil fuels. But again, we're seeing a big acceleration in self-sufficiency in energy, which has got to be good news for renewable energy, because renewable energy is the cheapest available source of energy. Yes, there are economic uncertainties at the moment, but big trend will be the, this agenda is absolutely exploding in Asia, Singapore is going to really embrace net zero, wants to become a major green hub, wants to become the regional laboratory and engine room for sustainable finance and technology. And I'm sure it will, because it's very good at organising and arranging itself for these things. Governments like Indonesia are embracing net zero. So the whole of Southeast Asia, I think, is very exciting. We've had the change of government in Australia. We can expect quite significant change there. We've got the Inflation Act in, in the US under President Biden. So there's a huge amount going on. We've had a change of government in Brazil, which is extremely significant given the very problematic regime that's been in power there for the last four years. So, you know, there's plenty of good. There's always political challenges, resistance, counter movements. But the trajectory economically, politically, 
socially, I think is very positive. We've got the COP happening in the UAE later this year, which I think will unquestionably do rather a lot for the Middle East in terms of its embracing of this agenda. Is it fast enough? Is it enough? It never is. But overall, I'm pretty optimistic about the trends that we're seeing, but there are going to be some almighty battles ahead. And I think the biggest one is going to be when the mining really takes off for the decarbonisation of the global economy. Is this mining something that you're going to be looking out for developments on that in the, in the coming months? Yeah, and we will find ourselves working on some of these issues for sure. We're going to have to have a different type of discourse between companies and campaigners on this because there will be ways of doing it well and there will be ways of doing it badly. It's got to be done well, but what won't do is the old discourse of that's terrible, don't do that. And Because unless you've got another solution, we're not going to decarbonise the global economy without it. Brendan, it's always great to talk. Some fascinating insights as ever. Great to have you back in the podcast. Nice to see you. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is as ever the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Do look out for the recording of our big carbon debate webinar from a couple of weeks ago. And don't forget there are only a few spaces at the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London still available. So register now to take advantage of the £100 discount on passes. Use the discount code PODCAST at the online checkout. You can take extended advantage of this offer until 14th of March next week. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.